Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. Uh, before we read our gospel reading today, uh, I have just a quick uh, word, just some housekeeping things, and then I want to read and pray and uh, move into what the Lord has for us. But um, before we do that, I uh, want to make an important announcement, which is that uh, today is our last Sunday at uh, 10 a.m. here at Christ the King, uh, which means our um, last Sunday before shifting to two services on September 10th. And um, I, if you happen to be here uh, new or your first uh, Sunday here with us, uh, welcome. We're so thrilled uh, to have you here with us. And uh, thank you for bearing with us as we have made some, as we are working to make room in our parking lot. So, for example, if you've had to park in a place where you wondered, I don't know that I should be parking here, um, that's the feeling that we would like to end today so that um, we don't have to have that feeling anymore, either when we were parking our cars, um, if some of you had to park here like on the side by the road, for you know, it's just, that's not a great feeling. So um, we're looking forward to making room in our parking lot and room in our kids' uh, rooms, space in our kids' rooms. So if you've been back in the back and seen uh, the kiddos in there, uh, things are full for them. And so we feel so grateful. Um, that we have the opportunity to make this shift to two services. So as of the 10th of September, we'll be starting our worship at 9 and then again at 11. And there are a couple of things that you need to know about that. Uh, the first is uh, that we're not going to have uh, worship together next weekend. So for Labor Day weekend, we'll not be here. And that is truly just born out of a sincere conviction that we have that, um, you know, you ought to rest every now and then before you start a new rhythm. And given that we've all been uh, in different ways pushing through the start of school and now here at Christ the King pushing into what will be a new rhythm for us going forward, we're just going to um, let the ground lie fallow, as my gardener grandfather used to say sometimes. Every now and then that's like good to do, to give things a rest so that new things can grow. And that's our hope. And so it's in that spirit. We won't be here on the 3rd. We'll start things new on the 10th. And those services will be exactly the same. So if there's not like one of them will do one thing and another, it's the same thing is happening, even with our kids' ministry. So the only differences will be in how we divide ages. And so here's the ask that I have of you. As you all are making your decisions about which service you'll be attending for worship, just bear in mind that we have a lot of littles back there. And so our biggest need is to separate those kiddos up as much as we can. So if you're a family that has your youngest is four and all the rest of your kiddos are um, above four years old, uh, then our ask would be that you consider the 11 a.m. if you're able. That would be a huge help to us just so that we can keep those rooms as balanced as we possibly can for all of those of you who are serving in those rooms so we can have um, fewer of us back there at a time and for our kids so that they have um, the best experience possible. Our commitment is to them to create spaces where they will feel loved by their church, known and seen by their church, supported and served by their church. It made all the difference uh, for me in my life with God. I was thinking this morning um, about the church that I grew up in, and uh, Brother Coy, as we called him, brought me juicy fruit every single Sunday. I remember to this day, if someone says his name, um, I think of Brother Coy and his juicy fruit. I guess it's the only time I ever chewed juicy fruit gum in my whole life. And church for me, you know, became about a lot of things. And one of those things was like juicy fruit gum from Brother Coy. And I don't know what our equivalent is here, but I think the reason that that stands out to me and has stayed with me is because, you know, he wasn't my family, but he was my family. He was the man I saw on Sundays who gave me gum and made church feel like home. And so you all are doing that for kids um, in this 
church every single week. And so if you have uh, been serving in our kids' ministry or have, um, or you're going to serve, would you just raise a hand like this so we can see your hands? Um, bless you and keep you. Thank you. Thank you. All of us are deeply grateful to you for your service to our church at large and to our littlest ones, the least of these, as Jesus would say. Um, so thank you all for bearing with. We're excited. These are exciting times for us around Christ the King. We've been saying for the last number of weeks, we believe we have an invitation from the Lord to like grow deeper together. I'm um, not just, you know, out, but to dig in so that we grow deep and we put down roots in the way that we're meant to. And we're thrilled to be able to do that with all of you. So thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to um, turn now to the gospel. If you all would please stand. This is Matthew chapter 16. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we bless you. We thank you, Jesus, for the reading of your word. We thank you, God, for the gift of being together here as the church the gift of worship. And our prayer now, Holy Spirit, is that we would attend to God, that you would give us, Lord, attentive hearts, that we would be mindful, Lord, of what you're saying and doing. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us the grace to hear you, to hear your word the way that we're meant to, that it would do in us, Lord, just exactly as you intend. We love you, and it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you have uh, been here for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the uh, kingdom of heaven quite a lot. And um, that's good because Jesus did that. He talked about the kingdom of heaven also uh, quite a lot. Uh, and we've been going over together, you know, just sort of why that is. And I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but just uh, to say it, you know, when Jesus uh, came... He came uh, to tell us something. And among the many different things that we could say that he came to tell us, um, like, you know, things that he instructed us to do, great commandments that he gave. He was a genius. He was a brilliant teacher. He was a moral exemplar. He gave us the gift of kindness and all of those things. Like, that's great. But really, if you had to sum it all up, the reason that Jesus said, you know, turn the other cheek um, to love your enemies uh, by the way, I was sitting at the table. My son uh, had to come home sick from school. Second week of school, not a good sign. 
And so he came home sick, and he wasn't that sick. Do you know what I mean? So we got to sit at the table, and um, all of you now, as I'm realizing, as I tell this, will be, um, you can pray for my kids that they'll make it through. But he had to write Luke 6, the words of Jesus, out, and then talk about them with me. And Luke 6, uh, the teachings of Jesus, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. And so he's writing this whole list, and then we're talking through it. And I'm like, why do you think Jesus told us to love our enemies? And, you know, he's just like, yeah, I have no idea. It doesn't make any sense to me at all why if somebody hits you in the face, you just turn around and give him the other one, you know? And it, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. And so the question that you're meant to ask is like, why love your enemies, though? Why turn the other cheek? What truly, in God's name, is any of that about? Really, did Jesus come just to make us kind, to, to increase or better our ethics? Is that what it is? And, you know, it is all of those things. Of course it is. But it can't be just about that. Those things, loving my enemies, and let's be real, the ability to love my enemies, the instinct to turn my other cheek if someone strikes or insults me, all of that is coming from somewhere. It's connected to a bigger and deeper why. And that why for Jesus is that the rule and reign of God has come. God is coming into the world in the person of Jesus and bringing with him his activity, his rule and his reign, so that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. That that work of God pressing into the world and bringing about the reign of God has begun. Jesus announced it as gospel, which in the first century was a political proclamation. It was an announcement about something happening politically, something happening in the kingdom realms, which is why Jesus used that word. You have a gospel announcement. I have good news for you. The kingdom of God is pressing in, is coming in. It's inaugurated. God is defeating. And then on the other side of the cross has defeated his enemies. And the rule and reign of God is available to you. And because God is who he says he is, we love our enemies. We ask for the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus to do in us what he has done, what he has done in him. So all of his time and teaching, all the things he did, his healings, his miracles, all of it pointing at the kingdom of heaven, helping us to see what it's like. And so the disciples have been with Jesus now for a fair amount of time, and he takes them on what I believe is a kind of field trip to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And um, you'll just have to bear with me for a moment. This is going to be uh, one of those like timeout Bible, you know, history moments, context, as they say, because I think we need to know something about Caesarea Philippi before we can really understand what it is that's happening between Jesus and the disciples. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was a famously beautiful and famously pagan city, a jewel of the empire really, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is because the whole city was built on uh, at the bottom of a giant cliff, this huge mountain. At the top of the mountain, Herod had erected this beautiful white marble temple to Caesar, and at the bottom, the city had been built all around what had become this hugely famous spring and cave. So one of the feeders to the Jordan River came out of this massive cave, so there was a river that flowed out of this mountain, out of this huge cave, and the city was built around it. So in a climate that was otherwise arid, dry, Caesarea Philippi was lush, verdant, you might say, green, blooming. It was beautiful, a kind of oasis. And so it was the perfect spot for the worship of fertility gods. Gods that, of course, we would thank, if we were pagan, for the flourishing of the land. And that's exactly what they did. 
So not only was there the top of um, the top of this mountain, this giant, beautiful white marble, it glistened when it, the sun hit it. Josephus wrote about it a lot. He was really taken with this this temple. And then there were temples to the gods next to and around um, this river. Also, out around this cave, they had carved into the cave wall these niches where they would put all of these idols and figurines. So if you looked at the cave, the entire thing, it looked like a shrine. And so it was because the spring came out of it. And it was so deep. Josephus once said of the spring, um, I know not of a cord in all of the world that is long enough to stretch and reach the bottom. It was like mysteriously bottomless, or so thought. And so it became known as the gates of Hades, the gates to the underworld. So when Jesus makes the reference in Matthew 16 to the gates of Hades, it's not a sort of random reference. He's referring to a place that would have been known and to what that site represented to the people that he was talking to. So here we are in this famously pagan, famously beautiful city that is devoted at every turn to the worship of Caesar and the beauty and power of Rome. See it reinforced over and over again. And this is the place where Jesus decides that he's going to bring his disciples in order to have a talk with them about authority, his authority, to ask them the question that he ends up asking. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? What an interesting place to choose to ask that particular question, isn't it? Because Caesarea Philippi was meant to make Jews in particular feel small and their faith to seem insignificant, powerless. That was the point. The city boasted of Rome's power, of pagan power, and it rightly so. It was everywhere you looked. So it's against that backdrop, with all of those images in mind, be it the idols carved into the cave or the temple at the top of the mountain or the temple to pan at the bottom, the river itself, all of it boasting of the glory of Rome. And Jesus, from that place, looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the reason that I love this so much is because if it were me and I was going to take a moment to ask that particular question, it would have been a couple chapters back when I was, oh, I don't know, strolling on the waves. (laughs) That would have been my moment. Oh, who do people say that I am, Peter? (laughs) You know, that would have been the way I chose to do it. Why here? Why in a city designed to make Jews feel small, their faith seem weak, impotent, and powerless? Which is, I promise you, what they should have felt passing through it. So here's the invitation, I think, to us. I believe you are meant to call to mind your own version of a Caesarea Philippi. Have you ever been in a situation or a circumstance That at every turn, almost every day, with everything that happened, it seemed to be built to defy your faith or your ability to believe. A situation or a circumstance, a season as we say, that made faith seem or feel impossible. How? 
could this be true of me? How could this be true of these people? How could these things be true and Jesus be who he says he is? How? So imagine that place for you. I would like for you to call it to mind and then put Jesus in front of it as if it were the backdrop. And from that situation, which may be a current circumstance for some of us, hear the Lord ask you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say Jesus Christ is? And you would say, oh, well, you know, most people think you're a good guy, that you did impressive things, which is exactly what the disciples said. You're a prophet. They say you're a prophet. They weren't wrong. Here's what's interesting to me, though. There is, and Jesus assumed that there should be, a difference between how people who kept sort of proximate closeness or nearness to Jesus, the crowds, you know, who are always featuring in the Gospels, the crowds are always around Jesus. They know something of who he is. They're drawn to Jesus. There is, in the mind of the Lord, a categorical difference between somebody who is just proximate to him and someone who is present to him. And how you see Jesus, how you understand who he is, will be determined by whether you are someone who keeps proximity to Jesus, which is not bad. He was a prophet. They did see aspects of who he was. They weren't wrong. But there is a moment at which you shift from being one of the crowd, somebody who is, sees Jesus as a prophet, to being whatever it is that happens to Peter. And my God, I love Peter. I love him because he is the kid who is always going to raise his hand first in class. You know, just can't help himself. And that's if he remembers to raise his hand he probably raises his hand after he's blurted it out. That's just his heart. That's who he is. And I love him for that because it's endearing to me. But it's not really, not only do I love him, I esteem what happens in his heart. Because here's what happens to Peter. Against the backdrop of something that should have, and by all accounts should have, made his faith weaken. It should have distorted Jesus. It should have made Jesus seem small. It should have made him feel faithless, weakened his understanding or distorted his vision of who Jesus is. And instead, the opposite happens. Against the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, Peter looks at Jesus standing in an impossible situation, and out of Peter comes faith. Jesus is magnified and clarified for who he is really. How? What a gift and a grace. You know what it reminds me of? And it's funny. The Holy Spirit has inspired, I really do believe, if ever there needed to be more evidence, those who sat and crafted our, our lectionaries and pieced all of these different readings of Scripture together. So Isaiah 51, when the prophet refers to Abraham, there's a reason that the compilers of the lectionary have chosen that passage and paired it, I believe, with this one. Because what happens to Abraham and happens to Peter are similar if you'll remember, when God is introducing himself to Abraham, he takes Abraham, first he promises to him. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you with many, many descendants, so many that you can't count, more than the stars in the sky. Do you remember that? And then he takes Abraham outside. 
and the, to look at the stars. And the reason that I love that is because, again, my tendency would have been, you know, Abraham, you'll have many kids like the stars in the sky. Don't look at how many stars there are because that will make you feel intimidated or like my promises couldn't possibly be true. And instead, God does the opposite. He takes Abraham outside and he goes, oh, you think there are a lot of stars? Let's just look up at the stars to be real sure that we both understand together what I'm saying to you. How vast, how big, and how seemingly impossible my promises truly are. Let's both look together. And in a set of circumstances, much like Caesarea Philippi, where Abraham's faith should have shrunken, should have drawn back, should have weakened, the opposite happens somehow, and we're not told how. But do you remember what the text says? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Something similar happens to Peter out there with Jesus against the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. That faith, that faith of Abraham, oh man, how, where does it come from? Here's the promise to me. I don't have to be Peter. I can't be Peter. I'm not. Neither are you. The point of the story cannot be that we're meant to be Peter. The point of the story is can you possibly believe that similar to Abraham and to Peter that you could be in the midst of a seemingly impossible set of circumstances, a circumstances designed to weaken and make your faith smaller, but that in a situation like that, should you choose to trust God, that faith could come, that your faith could grow, and that your experience of Jesus could get bigger, that he could be magnified and clarified as a result of being held up against the backdrop of something impossible. Maybe that's what faith is, after all. Anything short of that is just a calculation. Faith is for those of us who are very bad at math. Thanks be to God. It doesn't add up. Jesus says the most beautiful thing. Peter looks at Jesus and says, oh, Against the backdrop of Rome, somehow, Jesus, you are more who I need you to be. You are who we hope for. You are the living God. You are who the world needs. If Rome is all we have, God help us and save us. What we need is more of who you are and what you have to offer. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Peter, or Jesus says in return, and you... You are Peter, the rock. Is it Peter who's the rock? I don't think so. We all know that's not true. He's going to cave just weeks later. What he's saying is, you, Peter, this faith, this Abraham faith, this look up at the stars and choose to somehow against all odds believe for the impossible, this faith that now here in Caesarea Philippi can look at the grandeur of Rome and see its weakness, that faith that chooses to believe in the promises of God, to trust them and hope in them and step onto them, that faith, on that I can build the church. That will be a sure foundation underneath our feet. That's good. I can build the church. The temples, 
Rome, the cave itself, it will all fall. Jesus isn't promising to build an empire. He isn't promising to build a temple. Jesus looked at Peter and his faith and said, on that, that strong, solid thing that lives in you, I can build a church, a living body. And even after all these things are gone, and they are, we're still here. Here we are. Built on, I promise you, nothing stronger than the faith that lived in Abraham and then was given to Peter and has lived, I believe, I hope, I pray, in our own hearts so that on this rock we can build a church so that we can become the people to whom Jesus entrusts the keys of heaven, the keys of the kingdom. And a word on that before we close. When Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock, upon whom I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Gates, by the way, are where cities do their business in the ancient world. What he's saying to Peter is, the business of hell will not prevail against the business of the church. It will not. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And I love this image, and I've been over the last week uh, using it a lot. What we bind will be bound in heaven and on the earth. What we loose will be loosed in heaven and in the earth. What power to give to Peter. What power to give to us. What does it mean? So imagine it this way. I have within me, because of the Holy Spirit who lives in Jesus, given to me that same power to bind the business of hell. Notice that he says, whatever you bind, by the way, not whoever you bind. Important difference. whatever you bind. I have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I can in my own heart bind things like pride. I can within my own heart bind things like vanity. I can in my own heart bind things like bitterness. I can bind them up. And whatever is bound by the keys of the kingdom of heaven can be locked and put away so that the business of heaven can be loosened, set free, so that things like faith and peace Mercy and love can be released and let go. Faith. You have in your hands the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying. And if you are those who have the faith of Abraham, your father, in you, then he would like to entrust those keys to you so you can help him build his kingdom. You can be the means by which it comes. Powerful words. Here's the question I would leave to you, though. In your mind, put Jesus in your circumstance. Let him ask you the question, who do you say that I am? With all of this behind me and in front of you, who do you say that I am? And tell him he already knows. My prayer has been that I would get it like Peter got it. That in my own situation that Jesus would be magnified and clarified. That I would choose to take up Peter's boast and make it my own. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And so I have practiced saying it to him 
against the backdrop of my own circumstances, and I would submit to you that that is a really great way to ask for faith, which we're meant to ask for. It's a gift and a grace. When we pray today, if that's a specific need for you that you have, that you can't on your own, you're not meant to, muster up some kind of willpower or intellectual certainty so that you can say that you know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You can't muster that up on your own. And it's not something you're supposed to intellectually assent to first. It comes from your gut. Faith, it's a gift and a grace. Maybe the only way to have it is if just some ordinary nobody person in northwest Arkansas who just happens to be a saint of God lays their hands on you and prays for you to receive it. Maybe that's the way. So we should ask. Amen.